0: The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world.
1: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from The Irish Times. On Monday, property developer Rick Larkin wrote a strong opinion piece in The Irish Times, criticising a plan by Dublin City Council to limit the number of apartments in any scheme that can be used for renting to 40%. This will form part of the new Dublin City Development Plan, which is currently out of consultation. Rick Larkin says this will bring an end to apartment building in the city, as it's not possible to build apartments in Dublin that first-time buyers can afford to purchase. So is he right, or is it just scaremongering from a property developer? You'll hear from him in a few moments. Now, Rick's article prompted an email to me from Dermot Lacey, a Labour Party councillor on Dublin City Council, who rejected this notion. You'll hear from Dermot later in the show on his solutions for the housing crisis, which includes abolishing the Department of Housing. But first to Rick Larkin, who heads a property development company called Twinlight, which has built a number of apartments and housing schemes in Dublin in recent years. Some of them have been bought as a job lot by institutional investors as built-to-rent schemes. He claims this is now threatened by Dublin City Council's proposal to limit rentals to just 40% of schemes that this will put an end to apartment building in Dublin City. So I began by asking Rick why the council's proposal would end apartment construction.
0: Well, in essence, the, the difficulty we have in, in Ireland is the cost of producing apartments, whether they are for rent or whether they are for sale, is exceptionally high. It's among the highest in Europe. There's many reasons for this, and we can get into those if you like, but these are indisputable facts. The At the same time, the... The desire among local authorities to encourage home ownership is uh, something that we welcome. Uh, I, I, nobody can be opposed to that. I don't believe that anybody is opposed to it. But the idea that you can simply just specify that developments have to be sold uh, to homeowners flies in the face of logic because it essentially says we don't want rental property. We only want property for owner occupiers. And it does not take account of the fact that the cost of producing these apartments is so high that the average person who wants to be a homeowner simply cannot afford the cost of the apartment that is being put there. If you restrict uh, developers from being able to, to to rent these units or forcing them to to sell them to owner occupiers, they simply will not be built because there is no market there to support the construction of them. So it, it may be something that uh, people feel is scaremongering, but I certainly. I stand by it, and I feel it's just stating the facts. Uh, As as it happens right now, you know, all the apartment building that's taking place in Dublin City is taking place for rent. Uh, If there was any market there uh, for for owner-occupiers, people would be doing that. Because obviously, when you uh, design a scheme uh, that's going to be sold for rent, it's mostly committed to two years in advance, the price is fixed, you know, If there was a market for owner-occupiers, people would would choose that route because the price is rising all the time. There's a report Mm -hmm. in the Irish Times today saying house prices are up 13.5%. Well, I certainly, as a developer, would love to be selling units into a market where the prices are rising uh, by that much, but I'm not able to. Uh, So we we go down the the rental model. It's not really a controversial statement if you look at the logic of it.
1: Rick, is it fair to say that you earn more money from selling an apartment scheme as a job lot to an institutional investor than you would by selling them piecemeal to uh, couples or families or you know individual purchasers?
0: In the sense that the only way we have of actually financing them at all is to sell them as a job lot to institutional investors. Uh, yes, that's true, because if we were to try and sell them to individual purchasers, we would not be able to add a value that would cover the cost of construction and therefore we would make no revenue at all. It's not a question of profitability, it's a question of viability. The rental schemes are just about viable, and they are only just about viable, Kieran. I mean, we are by no means making supernormal profits uh, developing these projects, especially in light of what's going on in the market with inflation, with the planning risk here in Ireland. Um, But if we wanted to do it for individual purchasers, we, we just can't make it viable. We cannot get funding for that, and we can't get funding for it because there is no market for it. Um, the, the value of these apartments it does not rise to the cost of producing them. So if if somebody were to come along and magically change the the cost basis by which we produce apartments, I'd be all for it. Like I say, selling uh, units to into a rising house house price uh, market is is only a good thing for a developer, but it's not possible um, because simply the way the regulations are here, um, the, the standard of finish that's required uh, of apartments and the, the soft costs that are involved, just make it unviable.
1: Rick, why are you building apartments if it's not possible to build them at a cost that people can afford?
0: I ask myself that question every day. Uh, I think the only reason we really do this is because we've been doing it already for such a long time, and we don't want to, to shut down our business. But it is um, becoming increasingly difficult to make any sort of an economic return from it. Uh, We've been a a construction company going on. It's 35 years now. And uh, this year, we are looking at projects that are essentially break even. Uh, Meanwhile, we're being pillared uh, in the media. We're being accused by politicians of being uh, profiteers. We're being accused of being the root of all problems. And yet we look at our our income statement and think, well, actually, we're not really making a whole pile of money here. We're getting a lot of uh, abuse uh, for doing it. So it's a very good question and something that we keep under constant review. And I think a lot of people are going to start uh, questioning it entirely uh, when these new rules come into place, because they're going to say, well, we we are now being told by the local authority that we have to sell these uh, units uh, to individuals. We're being told uh, that we have to give 20% of them away to the state so the state can give them away. And we're being told that all of these policies are in support of ordinary taxpayers who want to purchase their first house. None of these things make any sense. Um, This is just a, a reaction to a crisis where the real steps that have to be taken to solve it are unpalatable. And so it is a question of who can we blame? And guess what? Developers are a pretty popular target for that.
1: Rick, when you say you have to give away 20%, I know there is a 20% rule there, but you are allowed to recoup the cost of construction, aren't you?
0: We're allowed just about to uh, recoup the cost of construction, but that you know ignores the fact that when you go to buy land, uh, you have to design these schemes realising that any of the economic return that you would expect to make, you're not able to make it uh, on on that 20%. There's also a very arduous process to arrive at what the cost of those units are, where the valuer, who also works for Dublin City Council and is not an independent entity, argues consistently that the costs of producing the apartments are below what they actually are. So in many cases, you actually don't get to recoup the entire cost of producing those units.
1: Rick, how many apartments have you got under construction in Dublin at the minute? Uh,
0: A little bit under 500.
1: 500, okay. What is the average cost of building those apartments?
0: It's very difficult to give you an average cost because they're in different places and they're of different designs. Uh, I know that the SCSI say that the cost of producing apartments is about 410,000, 415,000 euros for a two-bedroom unit. Um, the cost for a one-bedroom unit would only be very slightly lower than that, actually, because you know you still have bathrooms and kitchens and basements and contributions and everything that need to be made. Uh, that aren't really affected by the size of the unit. So it's in and around 400,000 euros and that's before you you do anything with land. And as I said in the article land is not free. Unfortunately, it would be very good for me if it was, but it isn't. If you look at producing an apartment into the market at, at you know 425, 435, 450,000 euros because remember you have to take VAT off it, you get to a point very quickly where where first-time buyers simply cannot afford it. Uh, and very much aside from not being able to afford it, don't want it either because we have this obsession in Ireland that we've been stoking for years about the three-bed semi. That has not changed at all. So the demand for apartments is very, very low. You can see that in the second-hand market right now if you want to go out and buy yourself a two-bedroom apartment second-hand uh, that was built, you know, in 2006 or 2007. You can do that below the cost of replacing it, and there's loads of them for sale. You can check on Daft, there's loads of them. In an environment where somebody can buy something below what it costs to put it there, you have to really question the idea of a policy that seeks to restrict people to only producing that thing when they know that it simply cannot be done.
1: So when you bought the land, and it might have been some years ago because I know that's the way things work, but when you bought the land for those 500 units, presumably you always had in mind building apartments on them. You perhaps didn't know precisely how many you'd get because you have to go through a planning process and all of that. But you must have had a fair idea. So I'm just wondering, the question I suppose arises as to why you would proceed with purchasing that land for apartments if it's simply not economical to sell them to individual purchasers that you have to find an institutional investor. and There's no guarantee that these institutional investors will always be there.
0: Absolutely not. There is no guarantee at the time, and it was several years ago, uh, the, you know, our business plan was that we would buy the land, build the apartments for rent and sell them to an institutional investor. When we did that, uh, we we bought the land. We make assumptions on things like the timeline and the construction cost. You know, th- there's a project that we just opened in North Dublin today, actually, for the first residents. And in the time that we bought that, COVID happened. So we lost 120 days uh, because of government shutdowns on site. And construction cost inflation has been running at 15%. So the assumptions that we made two years ago are completely flawed now. And if we were to buy that land today at the same price that we paid for it, we would lose money. Now, yet the, the land is not free. So the economic case for the investment that we have made there no longer exists. And in the backdrop of that, you have a, a policy machine and a political machine that seeks to eliminate uh, institutional investment. Uh, from the island for no reason other than they want again a scapegoat uh, to blame for the restrictive policies to supply that have been going on here for years, making it almost impossible to get planning permission, giving everyone in the country a right of veto and then turning around and blaming the people who are actually financing and constructing these houses for the subsequent shortage of it. So the business case that, that we had a couple of years ago is diminishing by day by day and the way things are going, this Dublin City Council development plan is just one other, it's not the only problem, it's just another symptom of this, you know, anti-development, anti-building denialism that's taking place in public policy circles that seeks to to paint supply as a bad thing. It is crazy, illogical uh, thinking and it needs to be called out.
1: Yeah, now I'm not sure the government would necessarily agree with you on all those uh, points. I mean, for example, they did introduce a fast-track planning system. They did um, take away the, the height limit uh, in certain parts of uh, Dublin. And in terms of objections, well, I suppose that's, that's kind of local democracy, we do live in a democratic country and it's, it's one of the features, isn't it?
0: I don't agree w- with that last point, Kieran. actually, because we, we always say things like that. We say, well, it's democracy, we have to have our say. But why does everyone get a say in everything? I mean, they, they sat down in the Dáil and they passed a law overnight to bring in a higher stamp duty rate because an investment fund was buying some houses in Maynooth, which, by the way, had previously been under contract to the local authority who were buying them in bulk. And no one seemed to have a problem with that. But when an investment fund bought them, no, this required the parliament to sit overnight and pass sweeping changes to legislation without actually any public input or debate. But when it comes to objections, no, 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 that's democracy, right? We can do nothing about that. We can't stop people from uh, lawyers from going around rounding up residence associations to take frivolous judicial reviews to point out minor flaws in, in, in design documents to halt entire developments which are going to be built and occupied by people who already uh, or, or, or people who, who need somewhere to live. These things are all being propagated by people who already own property. They're being propagated by people who don't want things to change. And if we if we simply turn around and say that's democracy, well, I don't know what's very democratic about that. We're going to have election in a couple of years and it's very likely that there, that, that there may be a, a change in, in the political uh, system here uh, and that people will say that's democracy and they're doing that because of the housing crisis. And yet when there could be very real steps taken to avert uh, or, to, or to, to lessen the housing crisis, in fact, they're not being taken and retrograde steps are being taken like the Dublin City Council Development Plan. As for the fast-track planning, I mean, if ever there was a a contradiction in terms, the SHD legislation has been a a complete flop. Um, And I I think the government would would acknowledge that. That's not not necessarily a criticism of it. But it was legislation that was brought in with the idea that all we really needed to do was was to speed it up. We don't necessarily need to do that. What we need to do is to make it simpler. Uh, it's becoming progressively more complicated. The rules are increasing all the time. And if you just keep adding rule after rule after rule and never take any rules away, well, pretty soon you get to the point where you can do nothing at all. And again, we see this with the development plan. The city council are now taking it upon themselves to decide what type of residential buildings can be put in here. And they're also not saying what's wrong with a lot of rental property. This idea that people who rent are transient There's a lot of people who rent their whole lives. A lot of people don't want to buy property. They don't want to be saddled with debt. They don't want to be in the situation that thousands of people found themselves in after the collapse of the Celtic tiger when they had mortgages slung around their neck. And yet they're treated like second-class citizens. They're treated as though they are the problem, when the problem is that we don't have enough houses. We don't have enough apartments. I mean, that's just a fact. And anything that we can be doing here should be aimed towards fixing that, whether that's for people like me whether it's a state, whether it's affordable housing bodies, everybody. But this idea somehow that you're going to create, you're going to make rules and rule your way out of it, is just bonkers. And the idea that we're just going to come up with ways out of this by by banning things. It's like the port tunnel when they when it was too small for the super trucks and the solution. We'll, we'll just ban the super trucks, you know. What are we going to do next? Ban economics? Because that seems to be the, the direction we're heading in.
1: Would you accept, though, Rick, that... There are people living in areas, they're seeing apartment schemes going up. It probably raises their hopes that they will be able to buy somewhere in that area. I'm talking about first-time buyers. They might be living at home or they might be living in rental accommodation. They see a scheme, a new scheme, come on stream and they think, well, I might be able to buy in this area, this could be great. And then suddenly they discover that the whole scheme has been sold to an institutional investor and that hope uh, evaporates. It's. I mean, I mean, that must be pretty soul-destroying for those people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I can understand why people would certainly feel that way. And I mean, yeah, life's not fair. Um, I I, I don't really know what the construction industry is meant to do about that. I mean, if there was a way of us building apartments cheaper, we would do it. I mean, this is like Ryanair, right? Like, we're not making these costs up. These are easily verifiable, and if if there want if, if there was a desire first of all for the market to own apartments the price of apartments would rise right and they're they're not rising but secondly if there was a desire among uh policymakers to encourage home ownership or ownership of apartments they could solve this pretty quickly actually there's there's about 40% of the costs that are involved go back to the state right so of that 410,000 euros you know 150k of that goes back to the state in one form or another, either through VAT, contributions, taxes, etc. So the state could, I think, very easily design a scheme where they say, look, if you're going to build an apartment building, you're going to sell it to first-time buyers, we're going to rebate back some of those costs, but just on apartments, right? We don't want to encourage a, another a bubble or speculation or anything like that. We say you go build an apartment building, first-time buyer comes along, wants to buy the unit, we'll rebate the VAT, we'll rebate the Irish water, we'll rebate some of the contributions, We'll try and bring down the cost to putting that unit there so that the person can buy it and the developer can make a, a, an economic return. Because absent that, all we're going to be able to do is get the state to contract with people like us to build units and then subsidize the purchase of them by just writing checks to people. And if that's the road they want to go down, you know, more power to them. But I don't necessarily believe that the state's track record in trying to produce infrastructure, particularly uh, buildings, is very good uh, from a cost point of view or from an efficiency point of view. And, um, you know, I, I, I think if they want to solve the problem of that person who's, who's losing hope, take some action. Stop just sitting around blaming people. Actually try and fix it.
1: Yeah, I would imagine the government would, would say that they are actually helping people get on the property ladder to help to buy and the shared equity scheme. But but anyway, can I just ask you in terms of the profit margin, because you're right in saying that there is a view out there that there's profiteering going on by developers. So what is the typical profit margin that you achieve on an apartment scheme?
0: For a contracting, you know, for the construction element, of it, it's roughly one and a half to 2%. Um, and then on the development side, you know, <laughs> it depends on what way you, you want to add that up. But I suppose when we look at it two years in the past, we think it's going to be 15%. It it very much ends up always below ten and typically five or six percent. So the developer can make six, you know, maybe on on a, on a very good day he can he can make eight percent, and then the the contractor makes one and a half to two. I mean, the the contractor figures vary a lot depending on inflation. I'm sure at the moment they're kind of hurting because they agree contracts and then prices of things rise. But yeah, it's the typical setup for it.
1: And are developers part of the problem in, in that they go chasing land and that bids up prices and, and maybe the price paid for some land is simply uneconomical?
0: Yeah, that's that's a big problem. It's the bane of my life, Kieran, is uh, guys that you know like to call themselves developers. Really, they're just people that own suits um, and uh, they could do well to buy a calculator with the suit, but they, they go off and they they go and chase land and drive up the price of it and Yeah, it becomes uneconomical. I suppose that the point is, though, and we we often hear this leveled at developers, say, well, they, they pay too much for the land and that's why the prices are so high. The price is set by the market, right? Whether you pay too much for the land or not, the market doesn't care about that. You're either going to find someone to pay enough to make the thing viable or you're not. Just because you have messed up, you don't get bailed out because of that. And certainly the value of these things is not set based on their cost. Because if that was the case you know, Yahoo, we just go and buy all the land we could. The reality of it is the the viability of these things, even on the rental side, is not great. And that's why you've seen under the SHG, you've seen roughly 40,000 units being granted planning permission. And I think five or 6,000 of them are under construction, something like that. So partially that's because people have got planning permissions that are not viable, the design of them, the cost of producing them, they're using materials or they're using a design that is, you know, maybe looks very nice in a picture, but isn't actually that practical to build. And partially it's because they're in the wrong area and partially it's because they don't have services connected to them. And so, you know, you buy something for 10 million today and two years down the road, you haven't started construction, you know, your cost isn't 10 million anymore, right? Your cost is higher than that now. So every day that goes on, the viability of this becomes harder and harder. And yeah, I mean, if, if, if there was less demand for land, and I think now there already is less demand for land, uh, the, the price of it seems to be falling because of, of cost inflation on the construction side, that will maybe help, but it will have to happen with all else being equal. If land values start to fall and then you have policymakers constantly changing the rules and making it more difficult, well, nothing will change.
1: And in terms of your own company, Twinlight, how, how many apartments have you either under construction or do you have plans to get under construction over the next few years in Dublin?
0: So we have roughly 1,200 apartments on our books. Now of those, roughly 600 are complete and the other 600 are in various stages of, uh, of planning or construction. We would like that number to be higher, but as it stands right now, you know, it's very difficult to see how you would be making commitments beyond 18 months uh, here in Ireland, given the, the situation, uh, w- w- the political situation and the economic situation, which, as we know, I mean, everyone is acting like COVID didn't happen, but COVID did happen and it produced very serious economic changes and maybe we'll have a lot of second order effects as well. So that's kind of where we are right now.
1: And if this 40% proposal in the Dublin City Council draft development plan, if it's part of the final plan, what would that mean for your business and how will you react to it?
0: I don't know. I mean, I think obviously this would only apply to new planning permissions and there is a lot of existing planning permissions in Dublin City. So it's a question of how many of those could be built in the timeline that's allowed. And, you know, but for us, we, we wouldn't buy, uh, land in, in Dublin City for apartment developments uh, that didn't have planning uh, under the new regime, because we couldn't see any economic way of of producing it. Now, the only way that would change is if there was some dramatic shift in the demand uh, for apartments that drove up their price, or there was some consequent shift that drove down their cost. I, I don't think either are very
1: likely. And you mentioned earlier how capital is mobile so does that mean you might focus your energies on other markets and leave Dublin behind?
0: Yeah, the UK is, is definitely an option and somewhere we, we've developed before and lots of other people have too. And, you know, there's also markets further afield than that. But I think the reality uh, is that, you know, we're a very small company and we don't really matter. But what you'll have seen, and I think the Irish Times again broke this story about Allianz, what you're going to see is the departure of large-scale capital. And when that happens, you're going to have a real problem because we do not have the capital stock here in Ireland to finance the level of housing construction that's needed. We just don't have it. You could pile together all the pension funds that, that exist in Ireland and, you know, all the government capital spending commitments that are in housing for all, and it doesn't come close. And that's the big dirty secret, right, that everyone wants to throw mud at the at the foreigners, which is something of a national sport here. But the reality is we need them. And when we start changing rules and making it harder and, you know, we have pension fund managers that are in London or in Amsterdam or in Paris who look at Ireland and think, you know, young, bright, open economy, we'd like to be there. And then they look at the rules and they think, God, is it really worth it? It's so hard to to get enough assets there and You know why would we bother when we can just go to other European cities that are crying out for housing investment? Because don't forget, this is this problem that we have, this crisis. This is happening everywhere. There is a housing crisis in Kabul that the Taliban are currently dealing with, that they inherited from the last government. This is not a uniquely Irish thing. And the idea that we can simply uh, stand up on the pedestal and say no, 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 the rules are different here than everywhere else, and you're going to play to our tune. And you know if you don't like it, then get out of here. We'll build our own houses. It's just madness. The money isn't here. I don't matter, right? Our company doesn't matter to the overall scale of things, but large scale global investors do matter. And when they go, they go and they may not come back.
1: You're referring to the fact that uh, we had a story about Allianz uh, deciding not to invest in, in the kind of build the rent schemes that we're, we're talking about because it might have a detrimental impact on the reputation of their insurance business, which is quite successful here, because they could be lumped in with cuckoo funds and vulture funds and uh, and all of that. Can I just ask you uh, about Sinn Féin? Riding high in the polls at the moment, um, very critical of the way in which the government, current government is handling the housing crisis, and they have a bunch of solutions uh, that probably wouldn't sit well with the uh, development community. I wonder how you feel about the possibility, the very strong possibility now that Sinn Féin could be leading the next government.
0: Yeah, well, listen, I'm not not—I'm not a political expert at all, but I, I would question as to whether they do have any proposed solutions. Uh, I hear a lot of rhetoric, and it's not something that can only be leveled at Sinn Féin. There's a v- the vast uh, array of political parties, including some of those that are in government, uh, like to trot out these sort of simple... Uh, solutions and with the greatest respect to all of them I know they're, they're doing their job which is to try and attract uh, political support but the, you know they don't know what they're talking about and most of them have never seen the business end of a shovel let alone actually developed or produced any residential property so I, I, I certainly I would take issue with the idea that they have some proposed solutions I mean they have some fantasies the same way a lot of politicians have fantasies uh, that they have no intention of seeing through and certainly won't be around long enough uh, to see the result of. In terms of the the effect of, of Sinn Féin, whether they're going to do half the things they say they're going to do, who knows? I mean, political parties make, like I say, make promises and then don't fulfill them. But if Sinn Féin are elected, that's democracy and, you know, let's get on with it. Uh, it's not as big of a crisis, I think, as everyone uh, wants to think it is. But the problem is when they are in the wings waiting for the election and they uh, trot out all of these kind of silly um, proposals about raising stamp duty to 17%, all that does is make its way back over to Germany and to Paris and to the Netherlands, like I said, and has guys looking at that going, do we need the hassle of this? Do, you know? Even if they don't do it, do we need the worry? Do we need the trouble of this? And so what I would say to Sinn Féin is, why not just talk to the industry? Actually go and talk to us. Find out how hard it is for us to produce housing in this country. Because it is an awful lot harder than it was 20 years ago. And maybe that's for good reason. A lot of things happened during the last boom that were absolutely ridiculous. Shouldn't have happened. Regulation was far too lax and it's been changed now. But a lot of it's not necessary. A lot of the, the roadblocks that are put in place are put in place by vested interests, who are essentially waging a class war on the young to keep housing costs high. And, you know, that needs to change. And I don't really mind who's in government if they're willing to try and change that. I'll support
1: it. Finally, Rick, if you were sitting in front of Pascal Dunhu at the minute, or uh, T-shirt Martin, and they said, Rick, give us one solution to the housing crisis. Give us one idea that could help solve the housing crisis. What would it be?
0: Emergency legislation to halt judicial reviews. Or, or not even to halt them, to just make people pay for them. And I, I've got no problem. The court system is a court system. You want to take a legal challenge against something? No problem, but you should have to pay for it. And this idea that somebody can just can delay a project five, six, 700 units for a couple of years and have no consequences to it. I don't know uh, where the balance of fairness sits there. Is it just with the person that doesn't want the housing development or the 3,000 people that would live in the housing development when it was built? To me, if you're able to sit all night and pass legislation to raise stamp duty to stop a single transaction, then you should be able to pass legislation that changes the rules and says, OK, you want to take a legal challenge, pay for it. There is 25,000 units held up in the high court with judicial reviews, 25,000. And I, you know, I'm biased. Some of them is our, are ours. We have about 500. You know, they're just sitting there. The land is just sitting there could be built on. Meanwhile, costs of producing it are going up, 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 up. They're out of our control. They're out of everyone's control. I can't blame the government for that. But the delay, the delay could be fixed.
1: Yeah, sure. I I think, again, people would call that democracy. Rick, we might get you back again uh, when this development plan has been uh, published in full. It's out of consultation at the moment and and we'll see where things are at then. But in the meantime, Rick Larkin of Twinlight, thank you for joining Inside Business. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thanks, Karen. We'll take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Labour Party councillor Dermot Lacey about this 40% proposal.
0: At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients,
1: enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. I'm joined now by Dermot Lacey, a long-standing Labour Party councillor on Dublin City Council, who has supported a proposal in his draft development plan to limit to 40% the number of units in any apartment scheme that can be made available to rent. I began by asking him why this was a good idea.
2: As a councillor, I have a wider responsibility. I have to try and ensure that we deliver housing in Dublin in the best possible way. And we need a mixture of of housing. I mean, I'm not somebody who has opposed lots of developments. I'm not somebody who tries to stop private development. I'm not somebody who says we only need council housing. But we we have a finite amount of land in Dublin, and we need to use that land in the best possible way to deliver the best possible mix of housing. And developing 100% built rents on land in areas that have... uh, Current infrastructure, in my view, is not the best way to use that land. There's a development, and I'll just use this as one example because there are several, Uh, there's a development up the road from me in Milltown, Uh, which has 600 uh, built rent and 70 permanent homes. Now, that's in an area that has schools, that has churches, that has shops, that has the sort of facilities that you need to ensure a sustainable community. And whatever the merits of built rent, they don't tend to be uh, housing schemes that people will live in with families for the longer term future, mainly because of their size. Uh, We do need built rents, but we need them in in a proportioned scale in the right places and in the right mix across the city. Um, and the suggestion that the development plan should follow the needs of the developer rather than the needs of the city is what made me respond.
1: Yeah, sure. But Rick Larkin's point is that these schemes simply won't be built for the very reason that first-time buyers, um, who I presume are the key cohorts in all of this, that they can't afford to buy apartments in, in Dublin City. And he he makes the point that the Society of Chartered Surveyors has uh, put the uh, you know average build cost for a two bed a basic two bed apartment in the Greater Dublin area at four hundred and eleven thousand euro. So he's right about that. And as a developer, he knows well that to build these uh, schemes, you need a you need a lot of money. You need to be able to. You can't just sort of build it house by house uh, as might happen with. Uh, traditional housing schemes, you've got to finance the whole lot, the lifts, everything else, the car parks uh, and and all of that. You've got to do the top floor as well as the bottom floor. Um, And to sell them individually then to uh, mostly first-time buyers just isn't realistic. And that's why they're having to go to institutional funds and secure money uh, on a forward funding basis to complete these schemes?
2: I think what Rick is advocating is a building policy. What I want to see advocated is a housing policy, because the city and the country needs a proper mix of housing uh, right across the city and country. Yes, there are affordability issues, and those issues need to be addressed in a number of different ways. But we don't resolve the housing problem by building smaller units and units that people are not going to live in the future. I mean, there is another development up the road for me, again in Miltown by pure chance, on the grounds of the St Anne's estate. There was a school there. They closed the school in order to build the houses, and now everybody there is looking uh, for a new school to be built. We need to have an integrated plan. And I don't think that Rick was advocating an integrated plan. He was trying to deal with the cost of housing provision, by building units that are not the best units to deliver uh, right across the city. Housing policy is a bit like a jigsaw, and it's one of the areas where I would disagree with the far left. The far left see that we only provide uh, one form of housing. I recognise there's a need for a mixture, but one of the really finite things we have is land. And we have to use that land properly. And within the city boundaries, where there already is an existing infrastructure, we need to ensure that we have a population that can sustain that infrastructure into the future and that can you know, ensure that communities are kept alive. Building on the scale that he is advocating of build to rent is not in the best interest of the city.
1: Yeah, where did the 40% figure uh, come from? In other words, uh, if a scheme is being put together, only 40% can be built rent. All of them have to be sold uh, to purchasers.
2: Well, the 40% first of all came from a motion that, that I tabled and a, no, a number of other councillors had tabled various uh, restrictions and uh, on what, what could be built. 40% was my best uh, estimate, was my best judgment as to what we could do. Uh, it's important to note that it's included in the draft uh, city development plan that development plan has now gone out for public consultation. uh, And we'll see what comes back. And I mean, we may may modify that to, you know, to 30% or we may modify it to 50%. It is, to be honest, uh, my best stab at what uh, is is viable and what we can deliver, and what is in the needs of, of the city. But you know, the development plan process is a long uh, debate. It lasts about two years between the initial phase and the final adoption phase. Um, it's out for public consultation, and you know, just as this is part of that debate, let the debate roll on out there. Uh, I won't be found wanting in listening to people trying to find the best approach. But you know, my fundamental aim is to try and deliver the housing that this city desperately needs. So was it a stab in the dark or is it based on any evidence? It's a stab in the dark to a certain extent, Ciarán, and I totally accept that. And that's in a way what this middle phase of the development plan Is that it's about throwing out ideas into into the debate, seeing what comes back, seeing what what you know what 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 good suggestions come forward. The city development plan is about an eight hundred page document, uh, full of ideas. Some which we will deliver, some of which we won't. Some are aspirational, some are really key, simple objectives that we can try and deliver. And the forty percent from me is my best estimate given what I've seen happen in the past uh, as to what we could and should do for the future of Dublin. But it is a debating point at this stage. Now, you made a couple of uh, other
1: interesting points in your
2: note to me. Dermot,
1: you've called for the abolition of the Department of Housing and Local Government, which seems uh, perhaps a bit extreme. But um, why, uh, given that we're in the middle of a housing crisis, and um, what would you replace it with?
2: Well, I've called for a, the creation of a Department for Housing and Local Government as opposed to a Department of Housing and Local Government. I'm on Dublin City Council 28 years, Ciaran, and in all that time I have seen it, a department who's clear absolute agenda is the destruction of local government in this country and whose record on housing is absolutely abysmal. Uh, I've seen a housing scheme built in my own estate where I live took seven and a half years to come through the department. A housing scheme for which there was absolutely no planning objections whatsoever was on public land. And the problem is the procedures adopted by the department are not suitable for the 21st century. The department is a dysfunctional department. The department, in my view's contribution to Irish society in the areas of housing and local government has been entirely disastrous. It needs to be fundamentally reformed. But the bottom line is that distinction between the words of and for. I want that the department to become a department that will enable building of housing and will enable the flourishing of local government. That has not been their record over the years.
1: German, of course, you're a Labour Party councillor and uh, you're saying you're on the council for 28 years um, and late the Labour Party has been in government for some of those uh, 28 years, probably, what, 8-10 years uh, during that time So, and they didn't solve the, the housing crisis they didn't reform the Department of Housing so uh, a failure on Labour's part as much as everybody else, no?
2: i say two things, uh, Ciarán. Uh, yesterday, uh, or Monday rather, uh, Liam Kavanagh died, who was a superb Minister for Housing back in the early 80s. During Liam's time in, in government, the housing solution in terms of social and affordable housing had largely been resolved. Uh, he delivered more housing than any other Minister, subsequent to him. Yes, the record of the Labour Party in government and local government has not been the record that I would like to see. I've said that. I said that clearly during the period of the last government, when Phil Hogan's legislation went through, the 2014 legislation... Uh, which in my view did serious damage to local government, was absolutely wrong, is indefensible. And indeed, I've heard Brendan Howland say that one of the few things that he really regretted during the period of that time in government was that that Local Government Act was allowed to go through.
1: OK, now the Department of Housing isn't uh, here to defend itself. Uh, nor well, the assert- Department
2: of Housing... One of the interesting things is the Department of Housing is never out there to defend itself because the Department of Housing operates in a manner that doesn't engage in the debate, won't engage in the debate, and yet they have this agenda of destroying our local government system.
1: All right, well, I I was just about to say that the Minister for Housing isn't uh, here to defend the department uh, as well. Civil servants tend not to to defend themselves in in public. But it should also be said that uh, one of the measures that was introduced was this uh, fast-track planning scheme, Strategic Housing Development, which did bypass uh, local councils in terms of planning permission went straight to board Panola, but that's been unwound now. It's going back to the local authority, isn't it? So is that not giving some uh, empowerment back to councils like your own?
2: Well, well look, let's look at what actually happened. The SHD system allegedly bypassed the local government system, but the developers had to engage in a long process of engagement with the local authorities and board Panola before it officially went to onboard Panola. Then it, it came to the local area committees, the applications for discussion. Now, one of the ironies is that the minister who introduced the scheme, Owen Murphy, or who modified the scheme subsequent to his time in office, uh, had instructed councillors that we were not allowed to discuss planning applications. And yes, he brought in guidelines which made it mandatory for us to discuss planning applications in relation to SHDs. I don't think the SHDs actually speed us up the process at all. It just took the opportunities for local people to seriously engage in a planning application out of the equation. And one of the things I've always advised developers uh, to do is before they put in their planning application, talk to the local people, talk to the local councillors. You would not believe the amount of issues that can be resolved by open and honest dialogue. And good developers have done that in the in the past. And, you know, not every development is, is opposed. I mean, the ones that are opposed tend to get the coverage in the media. Plenty of applications go through, get planning permission, and, and the, builder, the developer moves on. So I would encourage people to engage and discuss. And there's this sort of belief out there that, you know, residence groups stop all sorts of developments taking place and that they have too much power to obstruct. Remember, a developer will be engaged with the local authority or on Borpanola for probably months, maybe even longer than that. A site notice will then go up. And a residence association or a community group will have five weeks then to maybe organize, collect money, employ an architect, try and get an application in. So this notion that, you know, all this power to oppose li- lies with sort of, you know, voluntary community organizations is a nonsense. The power hugely lies with the developer and the executive of the various planning authorities. And, you know, I'm quite happy with the various uh, appeals that I've been involved in and and, and, uh, have won. One of them was for 210 apartments on a site that was subsequently dubbed a a floodplain. So I'm sure that particular developer is probably glad that we won that appeal because he would have been in in a lot of trouble subsequently to us.
1: Yeah, sure. Of course, a lot of politicians, both at local and national level, um, have been objecting to some of these uh, schemes, haven't they? Um, On the basis that they don't provide, uh, or in some cases anyway, on the basis that they don't provide the right mix of uh, housing. Can I just ask you, Dermot, how much land does Dublin City Council have itself under its own ownership or does it control?
2: Uh, I, I was actually trying to find that figure because I thought you might ask me, um, and I can't find it, and yet I know we have it. But what I have seen is that there are sites that, that can provide for at least 25,000 new homes in the Dublin city area between private and public. And we need that mixture. But you see, like when I was growing up, Dublin Corporation used to build houses. Because Dublin Corporation, as it then was, had a building unit, had a construction team, had a construction workforce. But all of those things have been moved from us. Uh, and now the power is, lies within the department. So I, I, I'm a member of an approved housing body. That's a voluntary housing, housing body. And we have delivered housing. And that's the way the department wants it to happen in the future. But the way that works, Ciarán, is that an approved housing body comes up with a scheme. That scheme then comes into Dublin City Council. Dublin City Council's architects and planners then have a look at us. Then Dublin City Council planners and architects have to send us into the department's planners and architects, and they have a look at us. And if at any stage along the way there's a change or there's variation or a window is moved or a door is moved or whatever, that then has to go through all of those three channels again. What I want to see is far greater flexibility given to local councils so that we can build a sort of houses that we used to build and that I'm speaking to you from now, it's an old Dublin Corporation house built in the 1950s. Good, solid home. We can do that again if we are allowed, but we have to be enabled to do that and the department has to become an enabler rather than an inhibitor. And in my experience, it has become an inhibitor of housing and that's why I have repeatedly and consistently condemned the role of the department and I will continue to do so until they start actually being an enabler of housing.
1: Yeah, you see, we have this romantic notion of the councils of local authorities across the country uh, building all these uh, solid homes in years gone by and how uh, this u- utopia of Ireland, uh, what a wonderful place it was to live. Uh, you know. But yes, councils did build apartments uh, effectively. We called them flats back then they built them in uh, Ballymun and they built them in places like Dolphin House and they turned out to be dumps and they turned out to be socially deprived and they turned out to be um, sinkholes for criminality and for uh, drug abuse and a whole pile of other social ills as well, didn't
2: they? Yeah, I think some of them did, and I'm not going to start targeting all people, but they did so for, those who did, did so for a whole load of social reasons. Uh, one of the reasons why I want to see a social mix is to enable that sort of, uh, peer pressure, if you want, within communities, so that they those who those who need to be encouraged to advance themselves in life, and talking about young people, will see other people in that flat complex doing well in life, and that's an encouragement in itself. We need to put in the proper infrastructure. I don't believe everything was a utopia in the past, but I will say this, Carol. I grew up in a Dublin City Council house. I now live in an old Dublin City Council house in a City Council estate. The only other house I've ever lived in was the mansion house. So all my life, I've lived in a Dublin City Council supplied house. The estate I live in is a really good estate. The road I grew up in was a really good road. Places like Cabra and Marino have delivered really good quality houses. And if you want to look at apartments, go up to Charlemagne Street now and see the absolutely wonderful apartments Provided by Dublin Corporation in the regeneration uh, that took place there uh, over the last few years, we can create new housing opportunities. They don't have to be the sort of the black complexes of old. In my view, we need to move to a situation where we have a better social mix within Dublin City Council flat complexes. Personally. And it is a bit utopian, but personally, I'd like to move to a situation where the income limit for getting city council houses was removed so that no matter who you were, you could apply, So that it was a better mixture within states. But given the current housing crisis, I think that's a bit away from us.
1: So what's the solution, um, Dermot, as you see it? I mean, in your note to me, you mentioned uh, this this living uh, above the shop idea and you're you're saying that 7,500 new homes could be provided between the canals. Um, And you could well be right, but I mean, that, that idea has been around for a long, long time. We've been talking about it for decades and it just never seems to happen.
2: Yeah, we have. And there's a lot of, a lot of uh, legal issues surrounding us and access issues and so forth. In fact, I just this morning, the Lord Mayor, uh, Alison Gilliland, held a really good uh, workshop. There was about 60 people at us from architects, city councillors, valuers, people involved in the property industry, talking about this issue and looking at how we could try and, and use it. One of the issues that we we, we considered was, you know, we, we've looked at living over the shops in terms of the sort of the, the standard apartments you know, a bedroom, a bathroom, living room and so forth. But one of the things we talked about was looking at it more in the type of co-living units. I mean, I think co-living has a role to play in society. One of the problems is the scale and the volume of the co-living units that have been passed. I would not like to live in a co-living unit of 200 um, other people where you lived in a dark corridor, didn't sort of know anybody and so forth. But the notion of smaller type co-living units and so maybe five or six flats in the upper floors of over the shops in Capel Street, Parliament Street and so forth, I think that's an option that we could and should look at. That's one option. The other option is to do something that we've done. Where I, where, where I live, I, I'm not just talking, you know, theoretically. Here in Beechill, where I live, We have, over the last 10 years, delivered nine new affordable uh, purchase homes through a co-op we established, and 19 new approved Dublin City Council social housing apartments through an approved housing body, and six new Dublin City Council three-bedroom houses. Now, that's in a small estate in the middle of Donnybrook Dublin 4 that we've delivered through a number of different initiatives. If we can deliver that in one of the highest valued land areas in the entire country we can do that everywhere and Instead, perhaps, of the department talking about delivering, you know, 10 and 15,000 houses a year or whatever, they should start enabling communities to deliver within their own communities. And the third thing I think we can do is to start enabling local authorities to build the level of housing that they did in the past. The fourth thing we could do, particularly given the, the advent of COVID and broadband interconnection, there are tens of thousands of houses across the country in villages and towns, People would actually quite like to live in now, can live in now because of interconnection through broadband. There are four things I would do immediately. If there's a will, I'm just not convinced there's a will, or there's certainly not a leadership there to do it.
1: Sure, of course we do have the land development agency, and part of its remit is actually to do some of what you're talking about, isn't it? Is to deliver cost rental and uh, and homes that people can can live in for maybe for uh, generations. Finally, Dermot, I just asked you about the Dublin City Development Plan. I mean, you did make the point that this is is still a plan. It's not, it's it's still in gestation. It hasn't been finalised
2: yet. So where do we go from here? What what are the timelines involved? So people have until the 14th of February to put in submissions. We then as councillors receive a report from the manager on all of those submissions. We then submit amendments to the draft city development plan. That debate will take place probably late June, early July. There will then be a third, if you want this, another draft report issued to the public. The public will then be able to comment on that. And then in the autumn of next year, we will put final amendments together. And then that development plan will be the development plan for the next six years. Having said all of that, the problem is that over the last three or four ministers, ministers have repeatedly brought in directions to onboard Panola that oversee, override the development plan. And that's one of the reasons why I say said in my, my response to you is that if ministers could help, it would be to stop interfering in the process. Let us agree a set of rules and then let everybody play by those rules. Developers and residents, that's the best way to proceed. Uh, Rick was talking about, you know, the constantly changing rules. The constant changing of the rules is by ministers, not by local government. And if we can agree a plan, and the, the minister has a, has a final say on the development plan, they can change anything they want, you know, after, after all of our deliberations. But when it's signed off, let's leave it at that. Let's leave the set of rules for the next six years. Yeah, of course, th-
1: this is changing the rules as well, isn't it? Introducing a rule that limits uh, built rent to 40% of any one Of course it game. is.
2: But every six years, we do a new development plan, we draw up the new rules as as are appropriate at the time and for the foreseeable following five years, but that rule book is then agreed. And what I'm saying is, let's whatever is agreed in the autumn of next year by the 63 councillors and you have a very very diverse council, whatever is agreed, let it be the rule book. I'll obey it. So let the developers obey us, and let the minister obey us, and let Amborpinol obey us, let the planners obey us.
1: Whatever it is. We'll finish on this point, Dermot. What if Rick is right in saying that if this rule comes into play, it simply won't be feasible for uh, developers to go ahead with these uh, schemes? So none of the schemes might get built. You you, you might not get your 60% of housing going to purchasers uh, because they simply might not be built.
2: I think builders and developers will continue to build across the city over the next five years. I don't believe that that it's going to be an inhibition on them. I believe that they will find other ways to develop other developments and maybe more appropriate developments. Builders still want to work. Builders still want to get paid. They still want to use the lands that they have. In the last five years, we've seen land lying idle for far too long periods of time. And I think part of that is the hope. Value that developers put on, that they're going to get that change through, that they're going to get the minister's ear, that they're going to get on Borpanola to come on side. Let them develop the development that is in the development plan. I've seen planning permissions wither because developers see a further possibility to make a further profit. I'm not against profit. I live in a real world and I'm not against them making a profit. But what I want to see is a properly planned city that can cater for the for the citizens of today and tomorrow, and that can use the existing infrastructure far far better.
1: Okay, Dermot Lacey, Labour Party councillor on Dublin City Council. Thank you for joining Inside Business. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Rick Larkin and Dermot Lacey. The show was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today, email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.